0: Okay, well, welcome uh, to the Think Education podcast. Uh, another one in the internationalisation and TNE series. I'm joined with, or by, my co-presenter Professor Judith Lammy. Uh, this is I can't remember. This is the second or third or fourth or fifth we've now done in the series. Um, but they're always fascinating conversations with leading experts in our world and um, where we can hear their thoughts and uh, their insights about the future and indeed the present of international higher education. So Judith, if I hand over to you, please, for formal, I guess, or informal introductions.
1: Thanks very much, uh, Chris. And it's great to, well, I see, say see you, see you again, but it's uh, great to be having a chat. And, and I'm really pleased today that we're joined by um, a good friend of mine of, of many years now, uh, Edward Harcourt. Edward is currently um, uh, Vice-Principal and uh, Vice-President of the Act uh, QS. Um, but uh, but I'm going to hand over to you, Edward, to give us a, a little bit of a background, because I know you've had a, a long and varied career, Dr. Harcourt, <laughs> should I say, in, uh, in higher education, and you and I have known each other far too long and neither of us are going to admit to how long it is, but it's certainly, as you were saying a little while ago, going in, approaching the the, the top of the second decade. So it just yeah. be, maybe be great for our listeners to hear a little bit about, um, not only your current role, but uh, how you've got to where you are.
2: Sure. Well, thanks, Judith. Thanks, Chris. It's very good to be with you uh, this morning and to be contributing to this leadership uh, podcast. So, um... Yeah, I've been in international education, I think, for just over 20 years, Judith. I think we go back almost that far. And how did I get into international education? Um,
3: like most people, I kind of found my way um,
2: into it through working in higher education administration. So I'm born in Britain, but I was an international student. I went to the United States to do my graduate work, do my master's and my PhD over there. Um, and then came back after an interminably long period of time trying to finish an American PhD, which take very long, um, and found myself at the University of Warwick on a one-year teaching gig. Warwick is my hometown, it's in Coventry, and I quite liked being back home, so when jobs came up in the administration at Warwick, I thought, well, I'll take a look at that and see if my kind of hybrid administrative academic background might be of any interest, and Warwick, as many listeners will know, had a tradition of hiring um, academics as administrators.
3: So I got hired as an assistant registrar and put on a sort of fast track uh, management trainee program. Um, And after a couple of years,
2: found myself managing an offshore campus project in Singapore, which Warwick ultimately decided not to proceed with. But it was one of the best overseas compass feasibility studies ever undertaken, I have to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Very thorough piece of work undertaken by Warwick. And that kind of inducted me into international affairs. I then got a job in the international office looking at the partnerships and institutional relations. And then I've stayed really a specialist in the kind of external engagement international relations space ever since. My big breakthrough, Judith, was when I succeeded you at the University of Birmingham as Director of International Relations. And I only wish I'd been able to succeed you in your other positions as you've gone around (laughs) the UK. But I ended up as Pro Vice-Chancellor,
3: external engagement at Liverpool John Moore's University. Up here in Liverpool,
2: I still live in Liverpool. And I was there for about six and a half years. And then on the back of that... I was either going to be another PVC of the same type in a very similar institution, or I thought, well, I'll try something different. And Nunzio Quacquarelli, one of the great innovators in international higher education, I'd known him for a number of years, and uh, he reached out to see if I was interested in running the enrollment solutions business for QS, which QS had just acquired
3: from Hobson's. And so I took that on about six months before the lockdown. And...
2: um, Yeah, I've had a really, really interesting time. I think it would be quite hard for me now to go back into the sort of quad of a college or university setting. And um, yeah, I'm quite enjoying being in the sort of commercial space. Uh, It's very free to foot, fast moving. A lot of talented people working in this area as well. And I get to work with lots of university partners um, in the UK and Australia. And increasingly in North America, and uh, that that makes for, for for a very dynamic and uh, and engaging uh, working life. So yeah, quite enjoying the job I have at the moment.
1: That's great, Edward. Um, thanks very much for that. And just as you as you were you were talking there, it, it did remind me of that that sort of um, that varied sort of career that you've had that brings those different strands together. You know, as you as you've worked in international. Cool higher education and in many ways actually it 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 fits in really nicely with with the kind of things that we wrote about in in the book you know the evolution of, yeah. of transnational education and i know when i was writing one of the the chapters and it was early doors and i remember sending you an um a, a link Request and you were kind enough to to respond to it and we we had a, a a chat if you recall then about about mergers and you know different ways we were right in the throes of COVID then weren't we and and the pandemic um, and we were having a chat about that and and thinking now and reflecting on what you've been just saying about your career you know it, it would be interesting to hear a little bit more from you about that, that the sort of I suppose the, the The connecting ways in which you might have, let's say, an an academic career, you might be working within the commercial space, you know, you might be working with different types of partnerships and colleagues in different sectors. Because I suppose with the roles that you've had, as you say, you've, you've, you've been in the... Um, I don't want to say purely interna- academic uh, space, but you know what I mean. You know, you've had academic yeah. roles, you've had administrative yeah. roles, and then I suppose, you know, the PVC external engagement that you had at Liverpool. John Moore's was an interesting one, wasn't it? Because it brought together your, your international role, but then also your external engagement with business and industry yeah. and community across the city. So, you know, yeah. as, we, as we start now to, to open up and the world starts to open up and, and we're moving a little bit more now, um, do, do you think that kind of experience but also that kind of model might be yeah. something that becomes even more popular as we go forward?
2: That's really interesting, Judith, because I did find that John Moore's, where I had a very locally focused role. I was working with local businesses, with local arts organisations, with the voluntary sector on Merseyside. You know, John Moore's former polytechnic, very, very embedded in its community with a student recruitment catchment, um, largely drawn from the greater Merseyside area, though it did recruit nationally and internationally as well. very clear that to be a university in the 21st century you had to be internationally engaged, you had to be recruiting talent around the world in your academic fields and for your student body, that you needed to have that, um, to be be part of the, the international conversation around higher learning and to be equipping graduates with the exposure, the skills, the confidence to engage other cultures. Oh, that was clear from
3: John Moore's, but what I really got from working there again, particularly after the
2: University of Warwick, which you know, kind of hovers between Coventry and Greenfield in Warwick, and doesn't have
3: as secure a sense of place, and where we thought that we could spin out a second campus in
2: Asia, and Warwick could become this transnational Anglo-Asian higher education institution. I mean, that was the vision when we set out to to evaluate the invitation from the government in Singapore to set up a second Warwick in Asia. Um, and that vision was of the moment, wasn't it? This was 2005, 2006. Every institution was thinking about how to, interna- to internationalise. And if you look back at the strategic documents of that age, you know, everyone was talking about Truly global, this kind of rarefied language that everyone was reaching for. You know, we've been international since 1492. I mean, quite <laughs> ridiculous statements, actually, when you look back in the light of cold experience and the ambitions at those times. I think were also a bit untethered from the reality of the circumstances that universities are in. And the the lesson I took away from John Moore's is the reminder that universities are creatures of place, that they're strung up in very particular circumstances, with links not only to local communities and to regions and to cities, but also crucially to nation states. Much of the funding for universities worldwide, including the private American universities, comes from their national government. And the nature of academic freedom is Defined and brokered at a national level, and it's very hard to come up with an international standard for things like you know, academic freedom, for example. So that that experience at John Moores was for me a real kind of you know, corrective in my you know, galloping embrace of globalisation and what that, what opportunity that might present for universities and what the university model of the future might be. And there was there were lots of offshore campus developments being started. If you look at the University of Nottingham, I mean, they started in Malaysia and China in that first five, six years of the 21st century. Not many universities are now looking at bricks and mortar policies overseas. Um, I went to a reception recently in London with the new chancellor of my American alma mater, Vanderbilt University, who'd come from the University of Chicago. And at Chicago, where he was the province, they quite famously set up a a Chicago research center in Delhi and in Beijing, and they looked at a campus development in partnership in Hong Kong. And he's come out of that experience saying, well, that's the last thing we're gonna do at Vanderbilt. Because, you know, five years ago, it looked like the Brooks and Mortar partnership in Hong Kong was a good bet. You wouldn't put your money into Hong Kong now and, and the collaboration centres are turning out to be quite expensive things to maintain and actually almost impossible for an institution to direct because it relies entirely upon the engagement and the initiative of individual academics within localised disciplines. So we are at a point, I think, post-pandemic as well, where we need to rethink the role of the university in an internationalized world, but one where maybe the globalization impulse has been checked by recent developments and where we will see many more barriers to the sort of freedom of movement that we all enjoyed for the first 20 years of the 21st century. I mean, we used to blindly hop on a plane and go to China for 48 hours. I've done it. I'm sure you've done it. I haven't traveled outside the United Kingdom in two years. And um, that will change but all of us are going to be much more
3: considered about the travel that we undertake and um, be i think much more level-headed about the
2: opportunities that we're pursuing with international partners
1: so maybe that that i mean i'm going to hand over to chris in a, in a moment but maybe that sustainability agenda and the you know the challenges yeah. of climate change i suppose has been brought home to us hasn't it but i do just want to to, to probe it a little bit further, it was in, interesting what you were saying about you know Singapore and the and Warwick and it, you know around in two thousand and five them looking at developing that campus overseas and it was very much of its time. I, I agree with you there, and I, but I felt that though that certainly just pre pandemic, the you know the appeal of the bricks and mortar overseas campus seemed to have started to you know reduce and different forms of TNE were becoming much more popular, but certainly, actually, physical campuses less so. I was just wondering, though, now, given the fact that those institutions that did have physical campuses or do have physical campuses overseas probably fared quite well during, you know, for, in various ways during the pandemic, whether actually it might be becoming more popular now. Although, but taking your point about place and the challenges of place and of course the thing with a physical campus is you've got to decide on one place haven't you and yeah. you might decide on it and do a huge amount of research and this might look like a very attractive place for whatever reason to to set up a campus yeah. but of course you never know what's going to happen and hong kong of course is a very good example of that isn't it would we have thought that we would be where we are yeah. now Ten years ago, with regard to Hong Kong, so maybe one to park for a second as I pass over to to Chris, but we might come back to that. You know, is the I, I I can see that you know campuses had started to, to to disappear from from strategies for institutions, but potentially maybe given the challenges we've had, that they might start to become more popular. But they might be developed in a different sort of way. Maybe yeah. I don't know, Chris. hand, hand over to you to. to to maybe probe a couple of those.
0: No, um, yeah, no, thank you very much for that. And um, yeah, fascinating points. I I worked for the University of Nottingham both in the UK and I went up to Malaysia to set up the graduate school and then I set up the graduate school on the China campus with a UK colleague. Um, And there are, I mean, there are many issues having surrounded that, etc. But one of the things that we always struggled with was this, as you say, sense of place, but also the sense of identity that it gave you. So, you know, was the branch campus right. actually the same university? You know, did it have its own identity? You know, at what point does it get its own, you know, place, its own value? Um, and one of the big things, I think, particularly within the, the T&E world is the developing TNE world is this aspect of research identity. So, you know, particularly right. when, when Nottingham began or was really sort of emerging in, in Malaysia no research work that was done was counted in the REF. So no, no research activity on the branch campus was counted yes. on the UK campus. And yet, from yes. the perspective of the of the national context in Malaysia, when you looked at the university rankings, the Malaysia campus was counted as if it was the UK campus. So in, in terms of the global yes. rankings, which, of course, is also not accurate. Um, and so yes. I've been really encouraged to see um, particularly, you know, QS rankings being done in regional contexts and therefore giving
3: mm.
0: more value to the place, um, understanding the the context and understanding the different sort of um, categories and I think that has to help yeah. with T development because the more that we understand a place for what it is and and again academic freedom is a is a critical but massively under discussed topic of T um, and and mm. so I think this I, I mean I think you're absolutely correct and I wonder if um, we know that the branch campus is the most risk intensive. We know it's the most costly um, endeavor of TNE, and it also locks you into something that reputationally has a, a bigger downside if it goes wrong. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. so I, coming back to your initial point, I, I do think, and this is what Judith wrote in, in her chapters and what we talked about her and I, I do think that we're going to see more of this sort of triangular um, partnership within T&E where you know, we're almost looking to engage with Um, industry partners abroad obviously with government backing in terms of sort of the regulatory framework but um, where we're looking to be as you say to be more mobile and and more more you know particularly I guess as you said the point you make at the beginning in the private sector the ability to pivot the ability to move is much quicker than it is in academia where it takes us what a week to decide if we're going to have a meeting like it's you know these things the pace of life is very very different Um, um, I'm I'm wondering if you I mean, I, I I work in Dubai, and that's something obviously that's incredibly relevant with uh, the way TNE operates here. Um, um, yes, yes. So no, so I, I I very much like the point, and I, I wonder if, if if this pull away from um, branch campuses may also be uh, a pull away from say the franchise model and look more towards um, sort of aligning with. Um, uh, not purely industrial partners but aligning with more private sector so that there is sort of the employability agenda there is the obviously the, the, go, the governance structure has to be you know in place from an academic perspective and, and that's no small issue yeah. but i wonder uh, because as you say this is something uk universities do particularly well domestically you know there, there's a lot of um and i wonder if that's something we we may we may see and I think that might change the badging. You know, the you know we we the way we actually package T and E degrees, micro degrees, partnerships, internships. I think there's a, there's quite an interesting avenue yeah, maybe uh, to explore. Yeah. No, there's a lot of things, uh, Chris, that are shifting here. I mean, I mean, you mentioned you know micro qualifications and uh, the interest that
2: business has in that mode of delivery as a way of continuing professional development for their employees as a way for them to sponsor um, the skills development that they need to see in their, their workforce, I think that, that's clearly one trend. Um, I, think, I think the emergence of some really credible um, you know, commercial delivery partners. Um, one of the things we did in my last year at John Moore's was to partner with Upgrad India and to license the delivery of um, a number of master's degrees in the engineering space through UpGrad. Uh, students do a diploma locally in India at a bricks and Mortar institution, but then they have the opportunity to upgrade that into a master's qualification by doing, um, if you like, the research part, the thesis part, with an academic um, as supervisor, and that was brokered by the upgrade platform. I think they've gone uh, from strength to strength from what I can make out in the last you know, two to three years. And that that is a really interesting model where you've got um, a commercial organization brokering uh, between very different types of higher education institutions mm. in the interests of, of the student. Because the overhead on universities in developing, maintaining, these bilateral links. Um, I've become a little bit of a stickler in my older age, Judith, of the language that we use in higher education. I mean, you've heard me already on the truly global, reified language that we've just lazily adopted.
1: I mean, I'm going I'm to go back and check that if, if I wrote truly global
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> many times, there never will be a truly global university. In fact, there isn't a global university. There probably should never be one. I think universities
3: as multinational corporations don't really work. And if you look at the
2: long history of collaboration in international higher education, then it's been around the sharing and and, development of um, institutional um, emergence. I mean, if you look at the development of the American research university sector, it borrowed from Germany almost every academic in the late 19th century got a PhD from Germany, but then they stopped doing that when the American sector was strong enough. If you look at the older Chinese institutions, I mean, they were very heavily sponsored by engagement with the Harvards and the Yales who, who put their knowledge on the table for the Chinese institutions to develop. That hasn't led to a long-standing collaboration or joint venture between those universities. It's in the nature of universities, I think, to stay close to place, to be within their nation state, and yes, to conduct international relations. But I think what we're
3: seeing is that commercial partners might be able to broker those better mm. than peer-to-peer
2: institutional links that are always going to be subject to the vagaries of personnel change, of the cost of travel, of the time that's involved in working out all of the quality assurance arrangements that need to be in place. I mean, it's a bit of a nightmare if you think about the work that's involved in producing an effective T&E collaboration, and I've done it. And then you ultimately end up impacting, what, 80 students a year, 100 students a year, maybe a couple of hundred at most.
1: Is this why then you think, to jump in just for a second, because one thing that this then brings to my mind is a consortia is this therefore then why you think, you know, universities join different consortia? I mean, we, we're both in them, you know, yeah. in our careers, in the, in the same ones, you know, but, you know, with, for example, you get ones like Universitas 21, World Red Universities Network, I presume they're, yeah. they're still functioning, and then you get the massive, you know, ones like, you know, the, the ACU, and you get smaller ones, don't you, where we have just got three or four institutions together, I mean... Do you think in one way that's why people did that in the past to try and help facilitate it yeah. smooth? But but maybe as well, is there an, an evolution going to take place with those consortia where we try to have or have industry partners as part of those consortia in order to, to help achieve what we want to achieve?
2: Or you have industry partners convene those consortia. Hmm. Because if you look yes. back at the history of Universitas 21, which which you and I yes. both know is one of the best established, most highly functioning international consortia out there. It's basically a network club for people at various levels. It's a vice chancellor's club, it's a director of international relations club, and there's real value in sharing practice and meeting up with people around the world once or twice a year. It tried to produce a global MBA. Do you remember that? U21? Yes, team. I do. I do indeed <laughs>
1: remember that very, very well.
2: <laughs> and it. And it was a failure. And in the end, it was bought out by Manipal, the private Indian um, um, education partner who were in a much better place to produce a global MBA um, that's then validated by highly ranked um, universities. It's got that quality, quality assurance standard. And that's what universities can provide. But in terms of the mechanics of producing a global MBA, a private sector partner was a much better place to pull that off than a network of universities who were always only ever to give fractional amounts of time on the margins of their day, given how absorptive our campuses are of our time and attention and how resource-intensive our campuses are.
1: Do you think sometimes even though consortia are all about collaboration about you trying to achieve something together collectively aren't you do you do you think though that because very often they are you know like-minded very similar types of institutions that the 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 competitive side of it becomes also you know something that that the, the people people will say, well, we can't do this because of the regulations, whereas in fact, well, yeah. there's one thing we've learned from the pandemic, actually, regulations can change pretty quickly at a university level, but also at a, at a government level. Yeah. But maybe that, that real competitiveness comes into play so that in some ways people don't really want it to work as much as they might do. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, I think I think there is an element of that, but I think I think those consortia are primarily hamstrung by by the inability or the reluctance of institutions t- to
3: devote the resources necessary to pull off what is a very grand ambition like a U twenty one global. It takes dedicated time. It takes
2: investment. It takes results, and and the membership fees for those sorts of clubs are only ever. To, you know, fractional amounts of 1% of the university's turnover. And it's very difficult to justify spending any more, given <laughs> the high demands that local stakeholders have on the university's purse. Um, but I think, I think commercial partners are going to be a much better place to to broker these kind of transnational networks and transnational delivery. Because I would argue, this is a, a provocative thought from Monday morning, uh, with authors of a book on transnational education but but I would argue actually that universities left to themselves can 't actually pull off truly transnational education. They could do binational at a limited level, but transnational education that is borderless and that reaches out i mean maybe now with the The online learning developments. I mean, we're still taking stock of just how revolutionary a development that has been. I mean, every faculty in every Western university has quickly figured out how to deliver their content online. In fact, I'm hearing that some humanities professors who would never have consented in ordinary times to teaching online now don't want to go back to teaching in presence because it's much more efficient and convenient for them to teach online. Now that 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 is a revolution that's just happened. And what is the the impact on that going to be? Um, again, very f- very few, if any, institutions are going to have the capability to securely deliver transnationally the content to an international audience and to commercial players, the Corsairs and the other yeah, providers who've had you know, 10 years or more. I mean, they haven't proven a massified business model yet, but they've been chipping away at how to do this. Um, they're actually pretty well placed, I would say, to to pick up the 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 emerging market interest in studying online. I mean, what we found through the QS surveys is that students were prepared to accommodate online learning while there was no other choice. And they were prepared to commence their studies online, but the vast majority wanted to get on campus as soon as possible. And what we're finding is that most students still prefer on-campus learning. It's that full immersive experience that they want from their international education opportunity. But what has emerged is a market where either international education is unaffordable or unattractive. Um, There is now a market clearly emerging at a lower price point for students who
1: want to take international qualifications and are prepared to study online. Um, Or Or it might bring us back to the overseas campus where you can study for a few years down the road or a couple of years down the road and then you can go you know, in a, in a sense, as many students have done who study language degrees, you can you can go to an overseas campus for one of those years. I mean, I suppose that's potentially yeah. a, a model that we might have, isn't it? I'm sure that we could range for a long time over the, these these um, these points that have been raised. And I, but I'm slightly conscious of time, and I know we're going to have to to to, to wrap up. Um, Soon. But there's been some really interesting points, I think, raised here that uh, I'm sure some of these are going to find their way into the evolution of transnational education, too,
3: <laughs> yes. which
1: is what uh, uh, Chris and I are thinking about at the moment. But really interesting points around around place, around identity, you know, and, and I suppose yeah. around and some, certainly something else that I've, I've written about is that sometimes apparent tension between a local place and a university's civic mission Mm -hmm. and its international ambition whether it that ambition may not be to be truly global but it just might be an international ambition of some shape or form and sometimes there can be an apparent tension there can't there but uh, I think there are ways in which universities can therefore then work with people across their local place with with the community, with industry, with other partners to, I suppose, be evidencing that global ambition whilst at the same time making sure that feeds in to support their local place um, as well. And that that's very important to institutions, isn't it, as well as others within the local environs. Yeah, that's right. I think I, th- I think that's actually a pretty pretty straightforward challenge to resolve, isn't it? How do you marry the local and the global when you work with local partners and you
3: follow their interests and where their their markets or where their talent pool, um, or where the history of the community has been? I mean, in Liverpool,
2: it made sense for us to to look at West Africa, to look at the Eastern Seaboard, to look at Shanghai. You know, given the links that 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 the city and the maritime history of Liverpool had kind of opened up and created those pathways and developed a name recognition, frankly. I mean, you could go to Shanghai and everybody would know the name of Liverpool, partly because of the football club, but there was you know, that maritime link that underpinned all of that. I think that's that, that's been a challenge, I think, that we've largely solved how to marry local, global. I think what we're now coming onto, as you say, and, T&E too, where there's, there's continually strong evidence that the demand for uh, T&E is only getting stronger, particularly now with the online learning um, element coming into play, is how best do we address? What is the ideal business model? And I guess my final thought would be that universities shouldn't think that they can do this best themselves.
0: Yeah. that No, and that's a, a wonderful place on which to end. And it, it's something that Judith and I have talked a lot about in the book that does, and indeed our conversations, you know, place, context, impact, value, you know, and, and just because we've done something one way doesn't mean this is the best way to do it. And and i very much like your earlier yeah. points about, you know, oh, everyone wants to be truly glad we want to do this. Why? Well, because they're doing it. But does it make any sense? Does it, you know, we talk about that a lot for the receiving yeah. t and but the sending, it has, it has to be, understood as well that there has to be a rationale for that and there are many options available and and i think this is absolutely critical and i think this was the last line of one of my chapters that if universities need to understand that industry and business are already doing this and it's it's a case of getting in now and being able to influence how that moves rather than saying we can't do it, we're not going to do it and being left behind um and so yeah there's yes. i think there's definitely a space for those types of conversations um and I wonder if you, you might be, uh, be free for a, an, another conversation on another day, because as Judith said, I think we could have gone into a lot more detail. These are sort of points that haven't been haven't talked about in, in many of our other podcasts. They're sort of opening up new avenues of, of thought, and um, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to, to re, rejoin the conversation at a, at a later point. Okay. But uh, thank you very much indeed.
2: Thank you so Chris.
0: Thanks. If you're looking for chapter writers as well. Oh, no, no. I think Judith's already written your name you down.
2: More
0: no, I'm sorry. You didn't read the fine print when you agreed to the podcast. Now that you're you already signed up. So, uh, yeah. Oh, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, your name has been written down.
0: Yes. So uh, we will certainly be, um, be sending a formal request because I mean this, you know, a chapter about what universities can't do and what they should do. and And I mean, this is, it's not. It's not provocative, but it's to be provocative. It's thought provoking because it's a very real challenge that we have to address. Um, <coughs> yes, and, yes. Uh, and no, it this is. is this has been fascinating. Thank you very much indeed, uh, indeed for your time. Um and, uh,
2: and. Sure. Sure. No, I've enjoyed it. Thank you both for inviting me.
0: Excellent. Thanks,
1: Edward. Thank you, guys.
0: Today. Wonderful. Yes. Well yes. Thank you. Nice very. time
1: for the week. <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm indeed. the nice when it comes. Uh,
0: yes. You too. You too.